Hi, this is John Hand again, and on this episode of Sci-Fi Showcase, we're covering a mega-budget Japanese disaster film from 1980, and the Japanese title is literally translated into English as Day of Resurrection, but it's known worldwide in the United States as Virus. The virus, if it is a virus, is like the common cold. It is everywhere, it is nowhere. It is more than a germ. It's a weapon. Develop part of a weapon here, another part over there, the trigger someplace else again, and nobody involved even knows what the hell they're working on until it's all put together. It was a paper study. It was an active research project involving the genetic manipulation of existing pathogenic viruses. The world has been beset by a horrible plague, and now we are unable to devise an effective vaccine. The United States has sustained its sustained casualties of the greatest magnitude. No country has escaped a similar fate. I uh, offer you no solutions. No hope other than that somehow you you may prevail. This time, try to work it out together, please. Please. When Virus was being made and released, it was billed as Japan's highest budgeted film at that time. I've seen articles which have quoted the budget from anywhere from 15 million to 17 million, upwards of a little over 20 million. I don't think given the way the Japanese uh, culture is uh, set up, we're ever going to quite know. But Virus is this gigantic, sprawling, international epic about a deadly virus which causes the destruction of life on Earth. It's a film very similar to The Andromeda Strain or Outbreak or the very recent Steven Soderbergh film Contagion, but Virus is like this big, Irwin Allen-type disaster film with this gigantic international cast of primarily American and Canadian actors and Japanese actors, and it was shot on location throughout the world. In the United States, there was some location shooting in Washington and in Canada. It was shot all over Europe and in Tokyo. And the film has a very epic scope and gigantic feel to it. The film begins in Leipzig, Germany, in this snowstorm, where this American-made piece of biological warfare, this virus known as MM88, is smuggled out of the lab by a research scientist who wants to find a solution to this virus. He wants this virus to be smuggled to a researcher in a different country because he knows that if this gets out, it could eradicate most of the life on planet Earth because it's this genetically altered retrovirus that really there's almost no cure for. The only thing we know about it is that it, this virus is inert at, at very low temperature, but as the temperature raises... It basically becomes this this monster which causes the common cold to cause a person's death in three days. It just it just it devastates any any kind of life form that it comes in contact with. Now, of course, 
this virus uh, is the smugglers screw up and this virus is let loose and very slowly we see through these little vignettes and countries and small countries the virus begins to spread and it begins to infect livestock and eventually it begins to infect humans the virus slowly spreads throughout the world it's known initially as the Italian flu because it starts in Italy, but then it begins to spread to other countries, and it begins to spread to the United States, and we can begin to see the death tolls in gigantic cities go into the millions. Now, the president, President Richardson, played by Glenn Ford in, in this very kind of stately, kind of Reagan-esque performance by Glenn Ford, isn't really sure how to handle this very early on. The fact that it's actually an American-made biological weapon of some kind is kind of kept from him by his generals, particularly this one hawkish general who is uh, played by Henry Silva. Henry Silva in this in- incredibly uh, hyperbolic, insane performance where he's like, this general who is like, we've got to wage war, we've got to, we, we must have this biological weapon in order to keep up with the arms race because both sides have got missiles, we need the advantage, we need this virus which can destroy all life on planet Earth in order to create, a, in order to have an advantage. <laughs> And, and I mean, it's just, he, he literally shouts uh, his lines. I mean, it's, it's an insane performance. It's like General Ripper in, in Dr. Strangelove, you know, Sterling Hayden with you know, precious bodily fluids. But it makes Sterling Hayden like, sound like a rational person. His performance is more like uh, Rod Steiger's uh, crazy parody of uh, the Strangelove character uh, Rod Steiger's performance in Mars Attacks, where he plays that commander, which is all like, we must fight, we must fight, we must fight, you know. And Henry Silva's his general is crazy. He keeps getting, he keeps trying to get President uh, Richardson to uh, allow him to enact this ARS or auto response system that, in case of a missile assault, our our nukes will will automatically launch in, in a retaliatory action. Even if there's nobody to push the button, it'll just it'll the sensors in the earth will automatically cause our nukes to launch. So we have all these arguments in the Oval Office in the White House between uh, Glenn Ford and another great actor Robert Vaughn is one of the senators who is kind of fighting this this biological warfare and is doing all this research into this. Because Henry Silva and his cronies have actually institutionalized one of the some of the doctors who give this very impassioned speech about how we've gotta we've gotta have global, you know, communication between all these scientists in order to find a find a, an antidote to this to this virus. Um, but they obviously they wanna keep the weapon, they wanna keep this biological weapon to themselves, so they institutionalize this doctor and eventually he appears at a at a very critical point. So at the same time, all this madness is happening in other parts of the world. In Antarctica, where it's at a cold climate and this virus can't grow, we have all of these Arctic research camps in, you know, from all these different countries. They have the, all these Arctic research camps in, in the area. One Arctic research camp is the Japanese station, where a Japanese earthquake researcher, Dr. Shizumi, played by Japanese star Masao Kuzakari, is kind of lost in memories of the young girl that he he left at the uh, port at the harbor as he was uh, going to Antarctica because he he left her and it's 
she always felt that that uh, his work was more important than she was. So he's haunted by this as they're slowly over the radio. They're they're hearing reports of the madness that's going on in different parts of the world and this virus which is destroying the entire the entire planet along with their home in Japan. They sit there helpless. Well. Unfortunately, this is a, a big apocalyptic film. No, no cure is found, and the first act ends with Henry Silva actually arming the ARS, the automatic response system, in the United States, uh, just as he's pretty much about to expire. And Act Two, after so Act One is just the 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 spread of the virus and the outbreak and pretty much the the death of the the entire civilization the the world the earth dying our wonderful fun hilarious act 2 takes place in antarctica where all of these antarctic base camps for these separate countries have all kind of gathered in the United States installation there and formed a kind of Antarctic government. There's basically only 800-some people left, basically, in the entire civilization. Uh, They're not going to let outsiders in, people infected. It's just going to be those 800 people there, and actually there's only eight women so it becomes very uncomfortable early on. They realize that they're not going to be able to have these, you know, uh, one-to-one relationships between men and women. The eight women are kind of uh, raffled off. They begin to be, as they begin to try to put together civilization, it's very funny that they, they don't even try to research finding a cure. You know, the most important thing is, uh, it seems to be at the very beginning is, you know, how are they going to reproduce and, and have sex? It seems like, you know, finding a cure to this virus is just like thrown out the window. And it's like, how are we going to raffle these women off so that 800 guys in this base camp can can uh, can get their jollies? But in any, in any case, the leaders of these, of these base camp kind of form the leaders of this new Antarctic government. And they're all kind of helmed by kind of big character actors at the time, you know, big actors that, well, I guess as big an actor as uh, a Japanese production company could uh, could find. The, the American leader is played by the renowned George Kennedy. Chilean leader is played by Edward James Olmos, or as he's known in the credits, Edward J. Olmos. And the Russian leader is played by this character actor named Chris Wiggins, who I guess most people would know him from Friday the 13th, the series, as the, the older balding gentleman. He plays an excellent Russian in this film. And while we're at the American station here, we also meet Bo Svensson as this uh, kind of brash uh, American uh, military guy, just kind of the the the, the typical G.I. Joe. And Olivia Hussey as this Norwegian woman who uh, was pregnant and, and gives birth. She's the first uh, woman who, to give birth in this new Antarctic government, and she begins to kind of strike up this love relationship with Shizumi, with Dr. Shizumi. There's also an atomic sub that shows up, an atomic British sub, the Nereid, which shows up, which is commanded by Chuck Connors, who's playing this British naval commander who, you know, has this very slight accent, but it just, it works with him because, hey, it's Chuck Connors, and you, you, go, you go along with it, you believe it. And so everything's going well at this Arctic station, but Shizumi, the earthquake researcher, realizes that there's going to be this gigantic earthquake which is going to rock parts of the United States and the Washington area where there are all these sensors that have been 
tripped by Henry Silva and then the ARS has been activated. So when this earthquake occurs very soon, the nukes are going to be launched. And then in retaliation on the other side, the nukes are going to be launched. And it's just going to be atomic war on top of the virus, <laughs> the, the virus, which has destroyed the entire humanity. Now we're going to be reduced to rubble with uh, atomic weapons. So the last act of the film is Bose Fenson and Dr. Shizumi Masao going on this insane mission to return back to the United States, back to Washington. They're ferried there by the, the Nereid, and they're given an experimental vaccine by a doctor who's been researching the virus, and they're their task is to actually deactivate the ARS before the earthquake occurs in the next few days and blows everything to bits. So it's this kind of race to to deactivate the bomb. It kind of reminds me of an alien when Sigourney Weaver is like racing to deactivate the the um, auto destruct in the Stromo. But just like an an alien, they they mess up, they they fail, and Bose Fenson dies in a very fantastic manner. Shizumi is left alone. Uh, as the bombs go off and the Earth, as as the subtitles uh, explain to us, the Earth dies again. So the last 15 minutes of this film is is really unusual. Most apocalyptic films would end with the bombs going off. Somehow, Shizumi actually survives that uh, atomic uh, hit because, I mean, obviously he's in Washington. He's supposed to be in this secret bunker below the White House where likely they took a direct hit and were turned to dust. But somehow he survives the fallout. And the last 15 minutes of this film, it almost becomes like a fable. It's this, it's this story of Shizumi, this lone figure walking across this barren apocalyptic landscape uh, full of not even carcasses but just skeletons of the old world and he this it's the story of this of it's a fable of this man walking across this landscape for years he walks across the uh, the American continent down into South America and he and he goes into Machu Picchu and he visits Machu Picchu and he's in this tattered clothes it reminds me of uh, Alejandro Hodorowski's El Topo because he's just like this man in tattered clothes wandering this landscape of skeletons and this barren landscape he goes into this deserted church and has this odd conversation with one of the skeletons and he sees the the tattered remains of uh, this Jesus figure on a cross and shares some meaningful moments with it and eventually is reunited with the survivors uh, because the the atomic conflict, you know, blew up the all of the Antarctic bases. But a handful of the children and the, and the survivors were actually ferried to a safe distance away from the Antarctic stations and they're still surviving. So the, the film ends with this kind of joyful, happy ending of this this reuniting of of this character, this this uh, man who's who's traveled across continents in order to be reunited with the Olivia Hussey character. So, that's pretty much it. I mean, Virus is a movie that's kind of got to be seen to be believed. I'm not sure the film completely works, but, you know, it's it, it's in the Irwin Allen mold of these big kind of disaster films of the 70s. But it's very unique in the sense that it's kind of seen through the eyes of Japanese filmmakers. And you really don't get the opportunity very often to to see films 
with an English cast, with an almost entirely English cast, made by Japanese filmmakers. The Japanese culture is such that they keep their films to themselves, and they keep their filmmakers to themselves. And it's not really unusual for a European, a French, a German, or a British director to go over and and make films in the United States, or make them with an English cast, but it's it's very rare. It's probably just a handful of films which have an international cast that was actually directed by a, a really great Japanese filmmaker. And we've, we have in this film one of the greatest Japanese filmmakers, Kenji Fukuzaku, who was, you know, of an incredible uh, high caliber, high respect. He had already kind of worked in American films. He had famously been one of the two uh, Japanese directors who had re- replaced Akira Kurosawa in uh, in Fox's Tora 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 film, a film about uh, World War II and Pearl Harbor that was shot with multi-directors, was shot with an American director and Japanese directors. He had also directed The Green Slime, which was a big sci-fi film from 1968, which was a primarily Japanese film, but it had an American cast with actors like Richard Jekyll and, and people like that. So he had experience with an English cast. He had experience with gigantic effects and spectacle, which this film is really full of that type of stuff. You see these full-on nuclear submarines, you know, and Antarctica. There's some beautiful footage uh, and shot and of of just beautiful Antarctica and these penguins and these happy you know animals there and and the, the, the animals that kind of inhabit that area. It's quite incredible. The producer Haruki Katakawa came from a big publishing empire, and he in the seventies he started to make films. Katakawa had produced the first Japanese film to be partially shot in New York in 1977, Proof of Man, which also featured George Kennedy as well. And so he brings to the film a very international populist flair with, again, as I say, the kind of, you know, the actors that he could afford at that point, people like Glenn Ford, Chuck Connors, uh, Robert Vaughn, and Henry Silva. And their performances are very kind of big, and melodramatic, and the film has a very kind of soap opera feel. The core of the film is Dr. Shizumi Masao, and he's really he really become, emerges as the the main character in the film. And it's this big kind of relationship that he had with this woman that she was pregnant, and she she told him that she wasn't pregnant, but she really was pregnant, and there's all this drama that he didn't know that, and he feels this kind of, um, uh, this uh, very Japanese type of conflict between his job and duty and his woman and the person that he loves, and so there's this kind of push and pull, and he and he feels that maybe he could have done more, or maybe, you know, so there, there's all that kind of you know like Sunday afternoon like soap opera stuff, and then, and then you know Glenn Ford goes on these big speeches, and and all these people are in the White House doing these big speeches where you know when in in life realistically they'd be in a bunker somewhere or they'd be in Antarctica because realistically you know there's this ending ending scene like the last scene in the White House where Robert Vaughn's like, well I hope it snows then we get some more you know. When you know, as soon as they realized that in an Arctic climate, this this virus couldn't reproduce, was uh, you know inert. 
everybody would go to the North Pole realistically. You know, you'd have a convoy of, uh, you know, <laughs> you'd have a convoy of, of, of political officials and the, 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 the muckety-mucks and the important people, you know, building mansions, you know, on the, uh, on the glaciers. So that, that doesn't quite jibe. And even the way that the virus, you know, it's in this, a plane crashes and the and the vial that ha- contains the virus breaks in the ground, but it's never really quite explained how fast, why, or how or why this virus moves so fast across the entire planet. That's never really quite explained, and everybody has these big melodramatic speeches, and you can just tell that this is, you know, a Japanese director, you know, trying to to direct these English speaking actors in a very specific way, but you know, kind of going for more of a Japanese aesthetic of performance, which is uh, too foreign. Uh, it, it, it's very weird because it feels like a foreign film, but but in the same sense, these people are speaking English. So it's it's kind of like melodramatic and sappy, and at the same time also kind of foreign as well to us, even though, you know, half this stuff is, you know, is in English. So that's kind of a, it's a little odd distancing effect, which, again, again, I guess contributed to its lack of uh, international success. And the ending, also the ending, of course, as I as I noted a few moments ago, it's never really ex- explained how Masao survives this uh, direct hit in, on on Washington and, and makes it out of the, the fallout and is able to traverse that uh, amount of, of land mass, uh, you know, without it seems like any kind of food it seems like he has two like uh, corn husks that he, he 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 munches on during the during the uh during his time period on the road but I, I i don't really find fault with that because the end of the film becomes to me it it, it becomes like some kind of epic fable it it goes into fantasy in a way and it becomes the, the idea of the of the of the traveler of this of this man going on this journey eventually coming, you know, to grips. And also, as he, it seems like as he moves through these locations, he's moving back in time, in a sense, to, to ancient civilizations, to the civilizations of Machu Picchu, and, and all of these things that he, he experiences. And so, on, on, a, on a deeper level, it seems to, to make more sense to me. Whereas I, 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 which I, I can see that some people could find uh, dislike to that because, you know, most contagion films, most outbreak films, I guess, and Drone Strain kind of set the mold. They're they're grounded in such a reality and uh, scientific reality that it's it's a little bit alarming to see a director like Kenji Fukusaku go into this this uh, this realm of fable and myth in, in this in this type of film. Though I guess it's kind of explored in films like The Postman and, and Waterworld. I guess that kind of gets into myth. But again, I guess kind of mixing those two, the kind of cold reality of a, of a bio-warfare film with this epic kind of, uh, you know, beyond Thunderdome, Waterworld type of mythic reality kind of, I guess, could, could um, set people off. But overall, I think it's it's a it's a rewarding film to watch, and it's 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 a great film. A lot of great Japanese actors in the film. I, I, we've talked about the international cast of uh, American Canadian actors, but there's, there's also you've got um, Ken Ogata, you've got uh, Masao, and you've got Sonny Chiba, and uh, all all these these three actors and, and the entire Japanese cast. It, 
you know, give these really impassioned performances. They're part of this international puzzle of, of international players. And the film has this very kind of global international feel. Now, I think there have been numerous cuts of this film over the years, which have kind of been released in different countries, in different areas. It was not released theatrically in the United States. It was released on cable television in a really highly edited 108-minute version. The original Japanese version, or I guess the original, the what you call the director's cut, the integral version that is, is most well distributed today, is 156 minutes. There, there may be some longer Japanese versions or some other information. The, the, one, the one tragic thing about this film is there's, there's a lot of information about this film on the internet. If you go on YouTube and other sites, there are very long interviews with Kenji Fukasaku, the director. There's footage of him, you know, on location, a lot of stuff, a lot of print material information, but it's all in Japanese. It's never been uh, translated, much of this. And so it is a little bit of a barrier to, to learning more about this film. Anyway, getting back to the cuts of Virus, um, there's... A great article in a recent issue of Video Watchdog, a great little video magazine from Tim Lucas, issue 155, which goes into all of the different cuts of virus and what was included and what was not. Great article by uh, film historian David Callett. So I'm not going to bore you with like kind of a blow by blow of, of the differences between the main cuts of virus, the 156 minute integral cut and the 108-minute U.S. cut, let's call them. But it is kind of interesting. You know, I've I've watched the original full cut, which is available on the Sonny Chiva box set, box DVD, and it's also available online at archive.org. It's also available at YouTube. Very kind of easy to get virus. Um, the, the archive.org version is probably the best in the sense that it has the subtitles for the to the for the Japanese parts. It it struck me in the sense that the 108 minute version, how they get how they slice away those uh that nearly hour worth of material there is they just basically slice out the Japanese part of the story, where most of the subtitled material that comes from is the Japanese segment where we see Tokyo, where we see the the people suffering in Tokyo, the hospitals that are filled to the brim with these with these people that are suffering the the ravages of the virus and the doctors who are just collapsing in the hallways and the and the nurses who are trying to uh, fight this epidemic when they're coming down with it themselves, and uh, Masao's uh, girl who is uh, having all of these conflict because she eventually, the virus causes her to lose the baby, uh, lose his baby, and, and there's all this thing where eventually she she goes out and, and commits suicide. She drives a big speedboat. She says, you know, we're, we're, going, to, we're going to Antarctica with this uh, dying, dying uh, child, and well, yeah, that's that's an interesting part of the film because they're driving out, and she's like, you know, we're we're going to Antarctica, we're going to see your daddy, and she's like, cry out to him, cry out, Papa, Papa, you know, and uh, we're we're not sure whether she's she's going out there to kill herself or is this kind of 
one of Kenji Fukusaku's, the director's themes, is this kind of indomitable spirit that he's always for fighters. His films are always about the underdog, and they're always about fighters. So we're not sure if she's going to go out to fight, or she's just going to run aground, or, you know, no matter what happens, she's going to fight, you know. I think that's the idea of that scene. But anyway, all of that stuff in Tokyo, and most of the of the stuff um, on the Antarctic base, uh, the Japanese Antarctic base, especially this is just cut out. And some of that stuff actually kind of works in the sense of being cut out because, again, going back to the melodrama, there's this one scene which even the most serious fan of Virus has to admit is really kind of humorous and ridiculous, is a scene where the um, Japanese Antarctic researchers actually come in radio contact with this young child whose father has presumably died and somehow... This guy named this this kid Toby, and Toby uh, is doesn't know how to use the radio. He he keeps holding down the microphone, and so he's talking about, "Oh, my dad is asleep. I can't find him. You know, I just I have this gun, and I don't want to be alone." And the research and the and the Japanese researchers are yelling to him, yelling, "Toby, Toby, Toby!" And it's just, "Don't do it. He do." You know, <laughs> let go of the microphone, and it's just this ridiculous scene where eventually we see, we hear, rather, we don't see because Toby's over the radio. We hear Toby shoot himself, and it's actually kind of Toby has a, this great talent because even after he shoots himself, he keeps the microphone held down. You know, it never lets up, which is kind of odd. And then they, the Japanese researchers, get all crazy about this, and they break out into a big fight because one of them says, "Oh, now he's gone to heaven." And goes, they just, you know, break into a big fisticuffs. But, I mean, it's just kind of, a, in some sense, it's just such a funny, ridiculous scene. It's a very serious scene, but it's just, um, it's it's brought to, it's it's played to such a melodramatic extreme that it just, uh, you know, it becomes very humorous. And then, you know, the opening thing in the plane, there's, there's these little snidely whiplash, there's this comment of like, uh, you know the plane's like it's unstable. We we can't. We're gonna we're gonna crash. And he's like, and and the main baddie's like, well, I know we have some excess baggage that we can let go of. And he looks, you know, rather sinisterly at uh, one of his um, one of his goons in the back that he can possibly throw out of the uh, <laughs> throw out of the plane. I mean, just ridiculous little moments there. There's some. So the 108 minute cut cuts out the Japanese segment, it cuts out some of the melodrama, and it actually begins the film with some shots of uh, of of Masao, like, there's this one beautiful shot, one of the most beautiful shots in the film, where we see this flat horizon where the silhouette of Shizumi Masao is, is walking across this tattered landscape, and we see the sun rise in the background, and his the silhouette of his form almost encapsulates the the middle of this of this uh, of this sun, and it's just this incredible, wonderful shot uh, that begins the that begins the virus film because that that entire journey that that Shizumi takes uh, through the through the continent is is cut out 
but this shot, this one shot survives. And there's certain parts of the ja- that Japanese uh, footage in the beginning of the film which are reconfigured and shown later in the film, like the, the trip that the uh, that Chuck Connors Nereid sub takes to Tokyo, where they rec- where they you know uh, have this drone that kind of comes up and in a in a model that was built by Coast Effects, and it kind of surveys this, this little like UFO ridiculous thing that kind of surveys the uh, Tokyo and uh, and it takes an air sample and which is contributes to the the vaccine that's created. They ha- I guess they had to keep that, uh, and uh, so they. That actually opens the film, but it's actually shown later in the film, and so that's the biggest. Th- those are some of the biggest changes. The entire Japanese, most of the Japanese segments are cut out. That 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 opening pro that opening bit with uh, visiting Toko- Tokyo is brought to the towards the end of the film, and the end of the film just ends with all this with all this stock footage of atomic explosions. It's just the world blowing up. There's no, there's no happy ending. There's no, it's probably a more realistic ending of uh, just the world blowing up. Just like, you know, the world's been ravaged by the virus. Now it's going to be completely blown up. It's just, the rubble is going to be turned to rubble. So again, I kind of, the footage is kind of reminiscent in the beginning of uh, a boy and his dog. Just all these atomic, you know, stock footage of these uh, atomic bombs going off. So Again, maybe a more fitting ending, but in some sense, the Japanese uh, the Japanese version, the full Japanese version, uh, works on a... It, it is kind of melodramatic and hyperbolic, but it, it still works on a certain level. And it's, it's a great addition to director Kenji Fukusaku's canon of wonderful films, which, you know, began so many years ago and ended with the, with the wonderful Battle Royale. Now, Christine Tagliata was the Washington location manager on Virus, and I conducted this interview with her where she shared some really very interesting anecdotes on the Washington location shoot for Virus, which I think are kind of fascinating. Well, it was all a rather hapless uh, series of events. I was a doing production management and, and research. I was like 27 at the time, you know, low level, but but relatively successful. Uh, but production management of small things, educational pieces or um, small corporate pieces, uh, things for museums. And I had done, um, I had production managed a Japanese um, documentary for Japanese television for NHK at the Air and Space Museum. A very interesting, good job, happy to get it. Sometime later, um, Virus was, you know, going to be coming to town, and they contacted the guy who was the go-to person for Washington for features when they came to Washington. You know, it's a big job because often you're dealing with the Park Service and the monuments, and 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 he was the person who was, um, you know, the guy who did features when they came to town. So he agreed to do it. Then it turned out that Raise the Titanic was coming to town at the same time. And for whatever reason, he much preferred doing Raise the Titanic. So he had to look around for a substitute. He heard via the grapevine that I had done this job for uh, NHK. Now, it's one of those crazy things in the business, you know. Oh, so because I had done this small job for a Japanese crew, 
in his mind, <laughs> that made me qualified to do this Japanese feature. Well, you know, it's not like I speak Japanese. It really, one had nothing to do with the other, but he offered me the job and it sounded really exciting, a feature film, so I said yes. And I had never, and to this day, have never been so in over my head. A feature film is big logistically, even though they were only bringing two actors. You know, in the Washington shooting, it was only Bo Svensson and uh, Masao. And still, I had to get. Well, I had to get trailers. I had to get you know a limo, uh, a, a limos for for Bo Svensson, a uh, car and driver for Masao. I had to get house trailers to be on the set. I had to get a houseboat. A, I had to get frogmen, a uh, zodiac raft, find a location on the waterfront, secure permits um, for shooting at the location in the streets. Um, uh, oh, I had to get cars, um, recent model cars that were banged up because they wanted to kind of, you know, litter the landscape with these messed up cars. I found out that Hertz, they, they would rent me cars that had been in accidents before they were fixed or sold or whatever. And so I hired a towing company to tow all these cars from the Hertz site to our location site, and then back again. Um, and when I say, you know, over my head, this is 1979. The world was different. I was 27 years old, but I didn't have a credit card. I mean, you know, it was not unusual for people my age at that time not to have a credit card. I didn't have a regular job. You know, I was a freelancer. My husband was a freelancer. So I start to rent all these vehicles. I'd never rented a car in my life. And I found out, but you have to have a credit card to rent a vehicle. So, you know, then I'd be calling the 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 big location manager guy at his hotel on the Raise the Titanic set, and, and he, you know, used his credit card. They gave me $25,000 in cash. The, the, the production company was dealing in Washington only in cash. I ran around Washington, D.C. with $25,000 in a bag. <laughs> and that's how... I paid for everything, except for the rental cars, you know, which I had to get a credit card for. So this is what I'm talking about in over my head. I, it was, a, you know, it was kind of a second unit crew, I guess. Um, I would say there was probably about 20 people, some, somewhere in that area, about that. Plus my, the folks I hired here. I hired production assistants, drivers, props people. That was, you know, that was pretty much the, the people. And I hired all my friends, of course, who were pretty much similarly inexperienced with a couple of exceptions. Um, I mean, everybody had a lot of heart and was really into it and excited about it. But for instance, I hired my good friend Polly to be Masao's driver 
and she hadn't even been in Washington that long, so she really didn't know her way around so well. Uh, but Masao was great. He was so sweet. And, um, you know, we all managed. We all just had oh, the biggest uh laugh, I mean a laugh because nobody ended up getting hurt, when we saw in the news that they had run aground, uh, you know, off the coast of Chile and had to be rescued by the Chilean Coast Guard. And I felt very proud at that point that, uh, right, it hadn't, uh, we had gotten through without anything nearly that bad happening. One of the worst thing, <laughs> two Bo Svensson stories. <clears throat> He did, uh, I had rented this rowboat from somebody, you know, talked them into renting me a rowboat. And at one point, I look up and Bo Svensson, not enough people were paying adequate attention to him. So he picks up the oar to this rowboat and breaks it over his head. <laughs> so I had to replace the oar. And then uh, one day near the end of the shoot, he invited all the crew and all my Washington people for, you know, to happy hour at the hotel after we wrapped up that day. And um, so, of course, all my friends and crew people were excited about this, and they all went. And I had to, every day after the shoot, I went up to the hotel room with the Japanese production manager, and we went over the day and what was needed for the next day. And uh, when I came back down, um of my friends were so happy to see me because, yeah, Bo Svensson had invited them all for happy hour and then had walked out without paying the bill. You know? <laughs> None of them had money to pay this bill. But, of course, I had the $25,000 in a bag, so I was able to take care of the bill. Oh, they also, I was driving a an old beat-up car. I can't remember what it was. It was some big Chevy or something. So I, I had all these crashed up cars from Hertz delivered and they had this um, awful mixture of cement and rocks and things that they then poured over the cars just to make them look even worse, you know, like they'd been sitting there for, you know, the few years they were supposed to have been sitting rotting there. And, you know, they put the skeletons in the cars and that. You only end up seeing one car in the in the movie, but there were a lot of cars. And <laughs> I go over to my car, and my car, my car that I have to drive has the, this yucky cement mixture, um, you know, poured over it because they thought my car was one of the beat-up cars from Hertz. So uh, it didn't, um, I could never get it off. It, it didn't keep me from driving the car, but it forever after had the virus scum on it.
just the race Just in time I see your face 